Welcome back to another episode of Nobody's Damsel. I'm your host, Ellie Coburn, and this is a cultural commentary podcast at the intersection of princess, purity, political, and pop culture. A lot has happened since recording our fifth episode last Monday, January 4th, so I feel it is important to note that we are recording this episode Monday, January 11th. That way, in a year that has already proven itself to be full of show-stopping performances, you'll know where in the world we are at during the recording of our sixth episode. Today's guest is about as amazing as they come, and I am so beyond grateful for her for making the time in her schedule to talk to us because there is a lot to talk about right now. Joining us all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, which is very obviously the center of a lot of happenings in the United States right now, is Victoria, who graduated from Notre Dame in 2017 with a double major in political science and American studies. Uh, Victoria and I met last year via Instagram, an overwhelming theme that will surely continue in upcoming episodes. And I couldn't think of anyone else I'd rather have on here with me during the week between the Georgia elections, a coup at the Capitol, and of course, the upcoming inauguration of Joseph Biden. So today's episode is all about what the heck is going on in America right now. And I am confident that Victoria knows much more than me. So let's get right into it. Victoria, hi, how are you doing? Hi, thank you for that intro. That was so lovely. I'm great. How are you? Uh, good. I I would say I'm anticipating. I'm in anticipation of a lot, but mm-hmm. but good. I mean, the tone has certainly shifted. I don't know if you had the opportunity to listen or even like tidbits of last week's episode, but recording last Monday, the world is radically different already. And so it's kind of crazy to think that by this time next week, things could be even more different. Yeah, no, I did. I did listen to last week's and it was so funny listening to that. And then, you know, we sort of went through that insurrection together over Instagram through the DMs and just sitting through there in my apartment. Yeah. Staring at CNN for five hours. Because I messaged you that night and I was like thinking of you guys. And then it was like, whoa, a lot happened in 12 hours. It was quite a ride over that 24 hours. (laughs) Um, Because I think that, well, when we had started talking there was no real intel on who was going to be the winner. Where were you at that point in terms of like your mindset? Were you hopeful? Were you scared? So Georgia politics is weird. I mean, as has shown through the results and the way that everyone was really shocked by what we did. So I've sort of learned in being from Atlanta that Atlanta is a bubble. Atlanta has always sort of been treated as something that exists separate of Georgia. And so I kind of go into every election cycle thinking you're in Atlanta, things look different. Don't get your hopes too high. But I was really, really hopeful. Um, It was just an unprecedented amount of attention on us. And more importantly, an amount, an unprecedented amount of attention on the kind of things that our good old boy politicians had been getting away with finally Mm -hmm. sort of having a reckoning. And Mm -hmm. that was directly due to the work of grassroots activists, to our queen, Stacey Abrams. um, Yeah. Some really amazing work, not only just with Fair Fight and Stacey Abrams, but at every single level. I had never seen, I'd never been part of voter contact like this before. I had never seen so many people who I genuinely had seen over the past decade be completely tuned out, uninterested to fired up, arguing with their own families about these issues and realizing in an 
in a way I had never seen in my life that they genuinely do have impact. And, you know, this is something I've been yelling about since I was nine because I was the weird kid who could like tell you who the secretary of defense was when I was nine. But now like seeing my sweet, amazing artist friends or like my friends who are accountants understanding what they can do in this world to sort of counteract this pernicious Mm -hmm. work was really exciting. So on election night, I was cautiously optimistic, but I had been hurt and embarrassed by the state of Georgia before. So I really was reserving all of my juju. I was like, I'm just going to see what happens. And it turned out great. I was really excited. So I'm really excited. Uh, yeah. So tell, talk a little bit about your upbringing in Georgia, because obviously the stakes were high that night on such an unprecedented night with so much unprecedented attention uh, because you had been, you know, you're born and raised in Georgia, born and raised in Atlanta, right? Mm-hmm. I was born and raised in Atlanta inside the perimeter. Very important distinction for us. It's a small group uh, of us and we're becoming yeah. rarer and rarer. Um, uh, both my parents are public servants. My mom works for child support. My dad is a county auditor. I've spent my whole life here in this city. I've lived in a three-mile range my entire life. The only time I was gone was college. And it just made me fall in love with the South again. And I came back because for a lot of reasons, it made sense. But I also just wanted to be here. And I'm really, really glad I did. Um, Yeah. So and Atlanta, I think it's important to point out Atlanta, like I said before, has always been treated as something that exists separate of Georgia. In the 60s, Atlanta's claim to fame, like their catchphrase was Atlanta, a city too busy to hate. So they were sort of known for taking on all of civil rights and being like, fine, we'll integrate. Fine. We'll take on, you know, observation from the federal government. We need to go. We have business to be done. And that sort of was always known as something that existed separate of what was going on in Georgia. But you... Atlanta is unique in that it's one of the only places in America where there are so many prominent, powerful Black people. This is a city run by Black people. This is a city that values uh, grassroots activism, that values political involvement. And it's just such an amazing place that I'm excited is on the global stage, but I also kind of want to keep it secret because my rent is going up too fast. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's coming to Georgia. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. I mean, it's so well, first of all, I'm just thinking like, where's your podcast? I want to hear you <laughs> every day. Um, it's My very- roommate and I talk about it all the time. I have a name. It's like we would make it politics and psychobabble and all this stuff. We talk about it. Well, so I, here I am. Your, first <laughs> listener, your most devoted fan. <laughs> I appreciate that because I am a big fan of yours. I love your platform and the intentional way that you approach speaking to people and the intentional way you approach speaking on issues. It's really, really important. And I think in a world where a lot of girls are selling, you know, flat tummy teas and talking about their up oh, toast. Like, yeah, well, no, I, I would have no, I would be out of business real fast. In that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I appreciate that and the acknowledgement. And that's been my struggle. I mean, you and I have had many, many off, off the record conversations. And even just today in our back and forth, getting ready to, to record, um, we've had dialogue. And I think, I, I think a lot, I was telling you right before we started recording that I didn't really know where I was at with social media. Right. Mm -hmm. And just how social media has, has become just a place where it's really a gray area because, what was one that ran, I'm trying to think of one random example that comes to mind. It was like, I had posted, 
about like going to the pool recently and on the one hand I got of course messages that were like why are you going to a pool because we're in a pandemic and I had to explain like these are all the precautions that I took I really feel like I made the right decision and then on the other hand I had like three people messaging me saying hey we have a pool in San Diego and you can use it and it's totally safe and like and so it's like you post something you put yourself out there you get on the one hand, backlash, and on the one hand, you get the solution to your problem, right? Yeah. And so it's hard. And that's something that that literally just happened in the last three hours. And so it's on my mind. But I think that it goes to show, and I've seen this time and time again, that social media is a space that will very quickly, in my experience, solve the issues, especially with the tactical um, community that I have created, or I guess attracted. And it's really beautiful to see. But then at the same time, when you're putting yourself out there, you have to make, you know, terms with the fact that you're going to have people that are not supporters or that are there, you know, to blatantly hate having you there or what have you, you know, and so it's hard. But um, in that, you know, coming back to the conversation that we're having now, I think that, social media is so powerful for conversations like these ones. And it's really hard because, of course, you're going to come up against all of the people who are really trying to hold on to a world where the predominant social media value is the flat tummy tees and all of that, you know. But at the end of the day, um, I think I hope, maybe I'm hopeful, maybe I'm kind of living in my own bubble, as you say, that Atlanta is a bubble, that maybe we're moving away from that direction of superficial um, community. But it's just, I think, holding on for the ride and just being like, okay, if we fight back and if we stand our ground and if we continue to talk about social equity as a center focus of what social media is, will we get there one day? I don't know. But you have to have hope, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's super interesting. One, because when I read that post, I was like, oh no, a YMCA. And then I saw that you were like, no, they were wilding out. They were not doing what I wanted. And I'm a really big sucker for like devoted parents who really go through it to try and give their kids great experiences. Cause that's the kind of parents I grew up with. So when you were saying like, I was on the phone for two hours and all of that stuff, I saw that post. I was like, that reminds me of stuff that my parents would do for me. And I also think that People love to be judgy, but let's be real. Like life with kids is insane. One of my best friends has two kids and every decision she makes now, I'm like, I can't, I cannot comment on it. I've been in your house for two days with two little ones. And I understand how every single choice is just, you know, survival and it's about them. So I think it's really interesting that you got like backlash from that, which I understand what they're saying. It was was two people and it was very much like, and we talk a little bit about this on the last episode, or I think it was the episode before actually, where we're talking about people that kind of, they're so woke that they're asleep, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so, and that I think a lot of times comes at the intersection of the duality of being a single person or being someone who's in a relationship versus being a single parent in a pandemic and how difficult that has been. And of course, you know, we're all independently experiencing this pandemic from our own interpretation of reality. And uh, one thing that I will say is that there is nothing like raising children at such an unprecedented crossroads in American history and then also in, in a, a, a on a world stage as well with the pandemic. And so it's been hard, but we were a family. I don't know if you followed me much before the pandemic. I don't, I don't know that we had connected before that. I don't think so. Yeah. So how did you find my account? So I 
have the weirdest Instagram discover page on the face of the planet. I get such weird (laughs) stuff from the algorithm. And I remember that I had gone in like a deep dive of your posts and then I lost you before I could follow you. And I had been like trying to remember your name. And then you were on a podcast like two months later. And when I looked your name up, you were on uh, Chatty Broads. And I was like, it's that girl. (laughs) I was like, there she is. Because um, your daughter's face is so distinct. Like it's stuck in my head. She's so gorgeous. They're so beautiful. Um, But I remember because I had just seen the post and I was, I find, uh, I found your story super interesting. And then I lost you and I was really mad at myself. So when you really, when you reappeared on Chatty Broads, I like instantly followed you. It was really exciting for me. Wow. Um, Wow. Very, very glad that you're here. This is like, that goes hand in hand with the whole thing of like, um, intentionality and the intentional use of of social media platforms and it's it's constantly getting to connect um with individuals who I never would have connected with that have just enriched my life tenfold that make me that you know really makes me want to stay but my point to get back on was just to say yeah. that um that even though you might not have known this about me pre-pandemic, I was kind of a sucker for doing it all. You know, the zoo, all of the different fun things that you do in San Diego, all the little hidden spots. I would try to be really intentional with taking the kids and doing all of the really fun, cool mom things, you know, and all of those things. We had memberships too, and we were really active in in those communities, in the hobby community, in the sports community. Um, And all of that has since reopened loosely, but we haven't re-entered any of, of that. We haven't reviewed any of our memberships. We haven't done any of that. And so it's been several months of of knowing that those are open, but but not feeling ready to, I guess, go back to them, if that makes sense. I totally and respect that. that. Yeah. I mean, and, I've yeah. been keeping it, I've been really strict and it's becoming more and more, you know, difficult with people around me who don't get it. But yeah, no, I definitely respect that. And I it's think there's a lot of fatigue right now too. For sure. With kids at that age, I it's I cannot I sort of, you know, have a lot of, you know, anger at people who are sort of following the rules, but I kind of have to carve out things like carve out a space for people with children because it's just an entirely different way to live life. And their little brains like just explaining to a three year old, a four year old how this works, it sometimes just feels impossible. And so I just am really, really impressed by the people who are having to help guide little humans through a world they barely understand how to get through. Like, it's just such a crazy time. And it is, it is really hard. You know, I'll tell Oliver, um, he'll say something like, I want to go say hi to like some random person on the street. And I'll say, well, we can't right now because, and he'll say, why in that exact tone and I'll say because of the virus remember and that's like that's soul crushing to have to tell like you know (laughs) like that at their purest when they just want to be little balls of love and bring so much light you have to sort of be like no there's bad in the world that we have to avoid right now and that's just I cannot imagine doing that right and then he'll just be okay and it's just it sucks because You are, I think too, and this is a huge tangent I want to get off of soon because I know you have so much to contribute in the domain of what you specialize in, yeah. but I think too is just like um, with mask wearing and, and all of that and just teaching a child how, I mean, obviously my children are at an age right now where we're just, 
learning about the mask. We're just trying to understand what the mask is and what the purpose of the mask is. And we're getting to take breaks in between mask wearing as needed. But we're also not, I mean, my kids haven't been in a store in 10 months. We're Mm -hmm. not going anywhere where they're getting exposed to large amounts of people or whatever. The most interaction they have with the public is like at a public beach or at a public, you know, on a public pathway on a walk. And so we're just learning how to mitigate all of that. But even that feels just so foreign because we're learning how to wear masks in public, right? As adults. And so it's just, it's interesting for sure. Yeah. And I think I have a way to tie it back into our subject so we can get (laughs) sort of all plays into this expectation. And I think the internet magnifies it of like this ideological purity. Like we do not make room for people to grow and learn and understand that we can say like, uh, can I curse on here? Sorry, I never asked. Oh yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want to. I didn't want to fuck up your bag. Um, so I was like, we can say yes, like fuck fascists. Like I'm not yes. holding space for people who are literal Nazis in 2021. I don't have to, but also allow space for room and growth. You can do both, and you don't necessarily have to be so rigid. And I think. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't like tone policing. I don't like telling people how to spread their message. I think there's enough of us that we can get to everybody. But I also think that there is something too. you know, making space for people, allowing them to grow people who deputize themselves to sort of have those conversations. And when we're stuck in ideological purity, on one hand, I understand not wanting to give your energy to that. I say you don't have to if you don't want to. But I think that you really lose out on some really meaningful conversations. If anything, you understand what is guiding the people who disagree with you. And I find that valuable, tiring, but valuable. 1,000 million trillion percent. And I think that too, I mean, it's one of those things where, um, I don't know, ideology and like ideological hierarchy, as we've seen it, it's not really serving us in the way that we would like to believe that it would, because think about the fact that 55% of white women still voted for Donald Trump. I, mean, <laughs> I think about it a lot. <laughs> Every yeah. time I go to the store and I look a woman in the eyes. <laughs> Clearly, this ideological purity has created echo chambers that are not working as well as they need to be working to ensure that in 2024, 2028, et cetera, we're not having another crisis the way we did in tw- in 2016. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. so, and that's, that, that burden, I believe it, it falls squarely on the shoulders of white women. Um, myself. That it does. It is not my job. I have exactly. friends who I am willing to teach. I have criteria for what I am willing to do. It is not my job to teach someone who already doesn't really understand my humanity. It's not my job to beg for it and to explain to you why I deserve it. It's not. Yeah. And I, and honestly, as much as it's amazing that Stacey Abrams hauled ass the way that she did, and as much as I think that she has a very good chance at potentially a presidential bid because of it, what do you think about that? Yes or no? I... Oh God, in my dream of dreams, I think that she'll ha- she is on track to be in the governor's mansion in the next decade. And then after that, I think the sky is the limit. If she doesn't end up in the White House, I think she'll either be a highly placed cabinet member. I don't know if she'll want to do the Senate or that grind because, you know, she's already mm-hmm. done so much of it, but she's got a really bright future. And I don't think her name recognition is going anywhere. I think she's going to have a level of influence in this country that is going to last her entire career because look at what she has done 
look at who she has saying her name and calling her a goddess. Like it's truly truly remarkable. And And it's it's funny because she like spoke at my high school and was like, Oh my uh, God. Yeah. When she was um, still in state politics and she was still a minority whip. So back in the day, uh, she would come and talk at my school. She, um, my roommate's mom, like used to interact with her at fundraisers and stuff like that. She was just a woman about town. Yeah. And I remember my favorite fun fact about her is that she writes romance novels under a pen name. I love that about her. Yeah. And now she's like, the country loves her. And I love that. But I'm like, she's our girl. That's someone like I grew up knowing and loving. And I'm so proud of her. But yeah, Yeah. I may be blinded by my absolute, you know, adulation. But I do genuinely think that she has a path to something really, really remarkable. I totally agree with you because I didn't have any of that, you know, preface or social history or anything. And I feel very strongly the same way that you do about her. And so clearly her impact is more pervasive than not. Absolutely. But my, but my point um, to bringing her name up, although there's a million things we could do at the intersection of her name, is just to say that it's, it, as, as amazing as the work that she's done is, there has to be a pause and a level of, of a little bit of sadness that so much of the work fell on black women's shoulders um, to fix the mess in Georgia politics and to kind of be the first pioneer for change in the South, if that makes sense. Um, and, And so, and I'd seen a lot coming about about that, about how much we put the labor on black and brown individuals to fix problems in politics that were literally created by white people. How do you feel about that? I mean, I would think that you would, I think that if you asked people sort of in the know, you'd know that for black people, it's not a new story. I think that throughout history, throughout the evolution of this country, before this even was a country, it has always been the burden of black people to sort Mm -hmm. of lead the way in organizing in. Um, just in envisioning a new future. I mean, you see it from top to bottom and it's definitely a refrain that we know in our communities. Um, But it's not that surprising. It's exhausting. And it is a lot of being told over and over and over again that you're wrong, you're aggressive, you're dramatic, you're doing too much. And then, you know, two, five, 10, 20 years later, all those women who have been reviled and often, you know, targeted you look back and they're right. You look back at some of the black activists of the sixties who like are now held up in this, like I, this place of idolatry, John Lewis, when John Lewis died and all of these people were talking about him in such, uh, such beautiful terms. And when you read the records of what was actually going on there, they were calling him an extremist. They were saying he was so angry. I remember sitting in a class freshman year of college and reading the work he wrote while he was in the 60s and all of these rich white kids being like, he's so angry. And then once I explained to them who he is and that they actually already knew who he was, they were all, you know, taking it back, walking it back. And I'm like, no, this is what happens. We were right. And now that it's 50, 60 years on and you know that you can call it disgusting, it's fine. But we're used to it, to answer your question. I think it's sort of always been that way. I do love that my people are getting their flowers, but I think it's a really old story. And I think too, I I mean, I 
oh man, this is so much. <laughs> this goes right back into like the whole social media thing that I was talking about. And I don't even know how it somehow all is looping together, but I just, <laughs> it's one of those things where I have felt as a white woman, just so much. I The way that I had described it earlier in the week to a friend is like, you see something that is a thousand pounds and you know that you're going to devote your entire life trying to pick it up, knowing full well that you're not ever going to be able to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where you could easily turn away from it and say like, I can't pick that up because it's a thousand pounds. Or you could acknowledge that you want to die trying, right? And for me, I know that and I want, I know that I want to die trying and I know that I want to live as a central example to my children that there is so much to be gained by trying really hard to even put a dent in all of the social inequity and all of the racism and all of the upside down virtues that this country was founded on. But um, it's it's really, really scary because you're not wrong that this is relatively new information to me. And it's really, really, really fucked up that that's the case. And I, I mean, in the sense that obviously Ferguson happened back in 2015 and mm-hmm. um, that was my first understanding. I mean, I was whitewashed as all get out up until my high my through my whole high school experience just whitewash in every sense of the domain where i grew up the city the community um whitewash through the lens of like um my church my evangelical church and all of that and then when i turned 18 ferguson happened and that was a huge turning point for me but in in the sense of like it was something that like it happened and then it seemed like kind of life started to move away from that being the narrative. Because remember, everybody was on the streets, everybody was rioting, everybody was doing everything that they needed to do to bring attention to it. I mean, all the freeways were shut down um, in my area. And it was just this big thing. And then just like with the BLM movement this past year, things start to return to a level of homeostasis. You know, they start to return to a level of quote unquote normal that is not normal. And this was for me that moment of like, I'm not going to go back. You know, the way that I went back in 2015, like I acknowledged it, I heard about it, I posted about it, everything. And then it was just like, oh, okay, we can now all go back and just completely not focus our attention on everything that brought us to that moment in Ferguson. And then with this time around, it's very exhausting to have made a decision up front that and then it's exhausting for it to be like, how is it 2020 and you're so stupid that this, I don't want to say, I, that's how I feel. I feel like I am so stupid to have just now woken up to it and then feel so much, like it's just so ridiculous that I'm having to have this conversation with you now. And um, I, think, I think what's super interesting, and I think this is like my poli side coming out, is that it's not that surprising to me, you know? And I think that what, if you, poli people, in order to sort of predict the future, they always look to the past. And you'll mm-hmm. find that in certain ways, history is always repeating itself. And something that I think is super important and super interesting is that in the same way, people always wonder, like, why, what is the timing here? What led to the timing of this? Why, was, why were the 60s so crazy? Why was 1968 such an incendiary year? And why was it all of a sudden that this got great traction, even though this had been happening, you know, for hundreds of years? And a lot of it was, everyone started having television televisions in their home, right? 
Oh yeah. So everyone started getting, um, they'd already been getting like newspapers and they'd had radio, but now you had TV. And when you had TV, that's some of the genius of John Lewis and SNCC was understanding that now that you have people who are looking at TVs every single day, news has unparalleled power, right? And so that's why John Lewis and the and SNCC and SCLC and all that started doing things like Freedom Summer. It was not just, you know, to get people registered to vote. It was not just to, you know, have these things. It was to get media attention. It was often, you know, people would go and get beat up on purpose because they knew that a media crew might come and it would be broadcast on the news. And so now these images, you could not hide from them. And I think that's something that's a really similar theme now is that we're all sitting in our houses. We're all doom scrolling because we're bored and we all have the internet. So you can't necessarily have these stories reshaped reshaped by news, reshaped by, you know, the Rush Limbaugh's of it all. If you have a video showing you that a man is laying on the ground calling out for his mother while someone's knee is on his neck, it really requires you to sit there and think to yourself, how do I feel about this? And there are a lot of people who are not so in the QAnon hole, which we can talk about. There are a lot of people who are just unaware. And that is by design. You know, there's de facto housing segregation. We can talk about public schools and private schools. So much of that is by design. You are, so many people have been intentionally kept from being around people who are different from them. But when you have something like the internet, when you have Twitter, when you have these social media channels, putting it in front of your face, it becomes really, really difficult for that story to be taken away from you for a lot of people. And I think that's why we had this reckoning. Everyone's sitting inside. Everyone, to a certain extent, is getting to, in an unprecedented way, look at this and, and reevaluate. And you also have access to sources. You have access that is allowing you to do the work in an unprecedented way. You don't need someone to guide you through. Google is free. You can look up how to be an anti-racist on Google. And I, so I'm hopeful in that way that I think there's a lot of people who genuinely thought they were going through the world and like, oh, Obama got there and it's great and things are getting better. And like, as long as I just keep showing up and like, uh, you know, voting when I remember to, it'll be fine. But I think that for better or for worse, like the internet has really made it possible. I think what QAnon and what those conspiracy people have done is they figured out a way to shape the narrative to sort of take away that equitable power that, uh, that, you know, internet bros would make you think that we have, that the internet is this free exchange of ideas. They've really cornered the market on framing the story online. But I also think that there is, there are a ton of people who have access to real information that they can interpret for themselves. So, you know, now that you know, you know, and it's on you to keep learning and to keep going because there's a lot of people who just reverted back, you know, started scrolling for tummy tea ads but yes and that yeah that is the um god I'm just so blown away I have not had this happen yet on a podcast where I'm just so blown away by the thoughts of my speaker that I'm literally speechless Um, (laughs) um, but uh, yes yes I just want to yes 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 and it's something that um just to kind of go off of that and to finish up what I was thinking is that I think that it's scary to be on social media, not because of all of the information, which you notice that a lot of people left social media when things got really, when there was no more tummy tea ads, when there was just Mm -hmm. conversations 
Instagram conversation, a lot of people left. A lot of people announced that they were leaving, and it's like we don't really care. Oh, but I hate that more than anything. Oh, a lot do of not people- sit here and give me your eight paragraph thing about how you're better than me because you're not on this space. Just take your break, take care of your brain. It's fine. If you right. can, if you want to like give people a way to contact you outside of this space, I get it. But it just right. feels like da 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 da. I'm amazing, and I'm like, calm down. Like, <laughs> Right. No. And you know what? The thing of it is, is that I've taken two big social media breaks in the past couple of years and I didn't announce it. And then I did get like kind of, we've been so worried about you. I had people like emailing my personal work email, like people that were like followers, like I'm so worried about you. And so I think in the future, I might have to be like, Hey, just for the record, I'm, you know, you can email me here if you need me. But, but the people that left social media, on account of the fact that there was quote unquote too much going on in the world, basically <laughs> basically stating like, hey, I'll come back when the coast is clear and we're back to the tummy ads. Oh yeah, it's fully that, nuanced. It's all about nuance. You know, that is where you're just like, are you announcing your apathy right now? A hundred percent. Announcing that you're apathetic. Would you like to get a reward? Like, it's the I am. will come to say, I don't give a fuck. This is really stressful. Goodbye. <laughs> and it's a lot of white women too. And I'm at a very unique intersection of white women who have adopted and who foster black children who like to also regularly announce their apathy, which is a special kind of insanity Um, that, I mean, it's insanity on their part, but it's also insanity inducing on my part. Like when I see that sort of thing (laughs) and wonder how in the world this is possible, or they're just like, you know, I, I know many, many a white woman who have adopted black children whose entire stance on this was like listening and learning and praying. And that was like their one post and that was it. And they've since unfollowed me for being quote unquote too radical. And so, yeah, it's a lot. And I think that my, my experience with being feeling claustrophobic in the social media sphere right now is the opposite where at the time when we were all doing the work like I felt that was the inception of something. Oh, great. We're all acknowledging that we're racist and that we don't know shit and that we need to change and do the work radically for the rest of our life. Perfect. I love this space now. It was like my dream come true because ever since I was a kid, I've always been that weird kid that wanted to go deep into the conversation. I'm the kid at parties that wants to like talk about politics. And, and so now I'm in this unique space back. I'm talking back in, you know, July, August, where the norm is that we we hash this all out and we get into it and I'm loving it. But I think that my experiencing now with the claustrophobia in the sphere has been the opposite, where now that it's becoming an apathetic space, a superficial space again, I'm starting to feel like, wait, 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 wait. We already went through this with Ferguson. How how are we just going back to normal? There is no normal. And then I think for me, there was a lot of incitement of hope with the Georgia election because I was like, oh, okay okay, wait a minute. Here we go. The pendulum is swinging. The pendulum is working. And so I'm hopeful that maybe even though a lot of people are going to be pushing back for that quote unquote normal that never was, hopefully enough people are realizing that we can never go back to that place. Yeah. I mean, I agree. And I'm also hopeful. I just like, I mean, no offense to your listeners who this applies to, but I don't have that much faith in white women. Like, (laughs) Like whiteness is such a, it's so, I mean, I will disclose I am half white. I, I I do experience a certain amount of privilege because I am lighter presenting. Um, and I've got some white Mm -hmm. family who are got to have some really interesting thoughts. Hey guys. Um, (laughs) 
yeah, no, I just, I don't think I have that much faith in whiteness. Whiteness is such a like wonderful cocoon. Like you don't, you think that the world is so much easier. You think people are nicer. Like you just think you deserve so much stuff. And like growing up like I did, what you'll find if you're any sort of like oppressed person, you know, you know that um, I can't stand him, but I love this gif that James Franco gif that's like first time, like first time experiencing the horrors of this world. (laughs) Exactly. And I feel like it makes sense to me when you're like, you look in there, you see everything's on fire and you're like, I think I'll go back to like having brunch with the girls and like listening to Brad Paisley. Like I get it. It's nice. It must be nice that you can do that. But it'll come for you eventually, babe. It comes for every niche. You just have time. So we'll see. I, yeah. I think, yes. I think if I mean, you start seeking out some more activist heavy spaces, you'll have a little bit more uh, reaffirmation that'll make you feel better. That's what I end up doing. Is just right. going into the those radical. I worry that in doing that, I will effectively like find my bubble. Uh-huh. And I think that, I've put a lot of thought into where I, as a white woman, heavily in my deconstruction, heavily in, you know, I, I'm not really good for much right now, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm heavily deconstructing. I have so many problematic ideals that I'm unpacking and that I was, you know, raised at the, yeah, uh, I was going to say raised at the tit of, but that felt vulgar, but it's true. <laughs> oh my God. I have been... <laughs> I've been, I just got my stimulus. And if you don't think that I did not send a Snapchat to 10 people being like, love to suckle that government tea, like, yes. I was like, give me my money. I was furloughed for two months. And so I was oh technically God. qualified for unemployment. My, uh, my unemployment card, my little debit card is framed in my house. So yes. <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, my, yes, that to, to that end, I recognize where I'm at and what I'm good for right now. And I think where I'm at and what I'm good for right now is appealing to white women who are just a little bit behind me in the process. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, it's very sobering to know that I'm not ready to be in any sort of, you know, leadership position, probably never in terms of like true activism or true reform or anything of that nature. But I can serve as a microphone. I can show my learning in real time to inspire others to try to, you know, get them moving in the same direction. And I can be a source of, I guess, resourcefulness for other white women who are way further along or further behind me in the process. Yeah. But in knowing that that's kind of where I'm at, it puts me at a unique intersection of uh, how much I'm allowed to make fun of white women (laughs) or how much I'm allowed to, um, you know, express my concerns for the superficial experience that a lot of, of that demographic are, are having. But I will say that it's in my mind, it's, I kind of toy with how much of that is those individuals, you know, being white women and how much of that is just me, like I said, since literal birth, always being the odd one out, always being the one in the room who wants to have really hard conversations. I feel like this is my time. This is what I've been waiting for, mm-hmm. but I've been raised in such conforming environments in such environments that use assimilation as currency. And I think so many other, other individuals feel the same that I kind of resort to a place of, of like, okay, I need to like, make sure that everybody feels comfy here. But now I'm realizing like, fuck that. It's not, that's not how it's going to go. 
So it's a lot. So yes, we were talking that night on um, Instagram about the, you know, the election and everything was going to happen very quickly. We realized that things were looking better than expected. Hell yeah. And um, at that point, I asked you, you know, how you were feeling. We were kind of waiting for things to get called. Um, and then what happened next? Um, yeah, so I was not sure how quickly the results were going to come back. I was actually really impressed. I don't compliment Republicans, but I was really impressed with how they sort of took all of the vitriol and all of the accusations from the general and sort of found ways to head it off. Like you saw, um, the people who were designated as mouthpieces sort of anticipating accusations and over and over and over again, parroting how they had sort of counteracted that. I have a really funny story about my mom, uh, interacting with some poll watchers. You want me to tell me if we, you want me to tell you that? Yes, I, I would love so a funny my, story. my mother, I swear to God, she needs to be an elections consultant. Like no one is better at getting us to go vote than my mother. Like it's a running joke. My, <laughs> she harasses us every time. She always says, she's like, I will vote for anyone dog catcher, blah, blah, blah. I never miss an election. And every election cycle, she calls me and there's no preamble. She's like, early voting starts this day and you can go here, 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 and here. There is like, no. <laughs> I but love her. She, and it's because she was born in 58, literally when she was born, like she was like, it was right when all of this was being decided. She remembers a time where she wasn't allowed to go into the store to get her own shoes, you know? And oh so, yeah, her mom used to have to cut out shapes of her feet for her shoes. It's a whole thing. So she really values voting. And um, so she was calling me because my whole family, we have conversations before we go vote. We have conversations about how we're going to go vote. And then we have like, we call and have a download about after we voted. It's just like ridiculous. Um, But she went to go vote. And for the first time that she's ever seen in her life, she's in her 60s. um, She walked up and there were these two blonde, uh, North suburb white women. They're a very specific vibe who were sitting there and they were poll observers. And my mother she was like, she first of all said, uh, she's sitting too close to me. I can feel her breath on my belly button. Why is she here talking about this woman and made the poll workers move her away from them. And then when she was walking out, all of the poll workers were black. Uh, she was like, they gave her, they checked her in and she said, Oh, is there anything else? Do I need to count uh, how many jelly beans are in a jar? Do you need me to say the preamble to the constitution backwards? Like, is there something else? Cause like, apparently we're going backwards and I need to jump through some hoops. I'm ready. Let's go. Like, she was like, do I need to go home and get my shoes? And she just was standing there, like calling out the idiocy. And then she told everyone to have a lovely day, ignored those women, went to vote. And that's why she's my icon. Cause she, I love her. <laughs> Well, it's ironic because your mother and those like her in all of their educated queen level glory are, you know, suspicious or women of interest or people of interest to these types of uh, very specific niche demographic poll observers. Mm -hmm. And yet they'll let anybody that's like free speech, Second Amendment, (laughs) I love guns. Like, and I'm like, aren't you worried that like, (laughs) over there shouldn't be voting like should there be a prerequisite for him to count some jelly beans before we give him like 18 guns (laughs) i'm concerned i'm scared 
But yeah, anyway, sorry to get back to answer your first question. Uh, my ADD is leading us down. Um, my ADD, my pride. I didn't even remember the first question. So uh, you were asking like what happened next. So yeah, I was super impressed with how they were sort of heading off all those concerns. They had, you know, tons of cameras on them. So you couldn't accuse them of like hiding ballots in mysterious places. They um, had all of the early votes counted and essentially tabulated before the polls had even opened, basically all you had to do was press a button. And so all those numbers came in really fast. And so that made for a really quick count. And so by the end of the night, by 11 p.m., they had already projected that Warnock was the winner and were calling it, and that John Ossoff was performing well enough that by the morning he would probably be called the winner. And that was really, really exciting and um, really, really validating. And then well, I what was the climate like in your house with your roommate? Were you talking to your mom on the phone or were you just like sitting in complete silence in awe and shock? So my roommate had been gone for just over two weeks. She has a very close knit family and they decided to do Christmas together. And because of that, I was like, okay, you can do Christmas, but like, that's a lot of moving parts. You're going to have to stay there until you all confirm that like no one brought COVID. And so she quarantined. So I was by myself. And, um, yeah, so my family had talked about it. Everyone was sort of like cautiously optimistic because we'd all been embarrassed and upset by Georgia before. And my dad was doing that thing where he's like, I don't know, it's looking pretty good. I think I'm going to pull it out. Like, I think those, those crackers in the North suburbs aren't really doing it. My father is white, by the way. So no one get mad at the use of cracker. It's my dad. Um, but he was like, I don't, I think he's going to do it. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And then by the next morning, we saw the numbers and they had both called me and they were both like, huh, I guess something happened. And then an insurrection at the Capitol. <laughs> yeah, so they like, got like, what, five minutes of, of joy? Yeah. yeah. And I work in immigration law. So we were really excited. Um, we were really excited when Biden came through because um, immigration and the rules and the changes to just, we do business immigration. So these, for the large part, are people who are highly educated highly paid and they're still having insane times getting into the country because of all the rule changes and all the funky ways that they're trying to keep people out. So it was just really exciting for that. And both my parents know that. So they were calling and asking me about that. And um yeah, so we got about like I'd say two hours of joy. Like <laughs> two okay, hours. Okay. And, and my yeah. dad's been really keeping an eye on um student debt forgiveness. Because if I, if my loans get forgiven, I will have no debt by the end of this year. So yeah, so it could really, really be life-changing for me. And I could, you know, go to grad school and take on some more debt. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. we got about two hours of that. And then, uh, yeah, things really popped up. That was also funny through the lens of our conversation, because we had like three messages and it was like, yay, congratulations. Wow. This is, this is crazy. Wow, yeah. did you see did you turn on the news? Did you <laughs> <laughs> and like and then I and then I messaged you like an hour later and I said, This is really bad, period. <laughs> I believe I was like, I am beside myself with anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I was like, Yay, oh. <laughs> yeah. oh what? So wild. Yeah. And um that happened. Yeah. Now the reality is that that not unlike so much else that has already been discussed in this episode, um, was kind of to be expected, right? Mm-hmm. I saw, a, I remember seeing reporters tweeting about it like before Christmas. 
like I remember I vaguely knew that there was something brewing I just thought you know they weren't going to have the numbers pulled together and they did they did yeah and they um and they have more things in the works as of right now that's my understanding all 50 states per the FBI um yeah yeah, it's kind of scary because it's well it's very very scary but I think it's kind of scary through the lens of um real like you know that consequences have actions and you know that the state of our (laughs) this here United States of America uh, (laughs) has been getting to this point but it's very sobering to be like oh, it's happening in real time. Oh, there's photos being released. Oh, there's videos. This is live footage right now from the Capitol. It's very hard to take an idea of like, this could happen or if we continue on this trajectory, this will happen to like, okay, congratulations. You know, you've reaped what what you sowed and now here you go. Here's some live footage for you. Yeah. I mean, if we set aside, um, in my household, we say triple, which is basically saying, Uh, That's a shorthand of being like, when we make this comment, we are acknowledging that like, uh, in this case, triple means I understand that this was like tragic. I don't want this to have happened. I don't want anyone to have died. I don't think anyone should have, you know, uh, desecrated (laughs) such an important building. I think some blah, 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 triple. I'm saying all of that ahead of time. I'm kind of glad that it happened on national TV because can you imagine how it would have been spun if you could not sit there and look at it and see one like these sort of lackadaisical cops, no national guard showing up for two hours, that kind of stuff gets lost in the retelling. But so many people were able to sit there uh, and just feel helpless and understand like the gravity of what this did. And it had immediate consequences for Trump, the kind of consequences that lefties like me have been begging for for four years immediately because there was not a way out of it you know you saw firsthand these underprepared cops you saw firsthand no national guard coming out you saw firsthand people breaking windows breaking in and i think that that was important awful but uh, again important so i do I, i do and i think that What was crazy to me, I don't know if you noticed this at all, but what was crazy to me is the way that the national tone, the national shock is what really got things going towards arrests and towards, okay, oh, 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 this is bad PR. Oh, this is bad PR. We need to establish that we don't agree what's going on here. Because in real time, There was extreme apathy on behalf of the law enforcement agencies, extreme apathy on behalf of the National Guard, extreme, um, you you know, walking white women down steps of the Capitol, holding their hands. I mean, it it was was just a whole thing. And it was only when everybody that was in that moment, because in that moment, they didn't have the, you know, or the, I guess, objective sight to see how bad what they were engaging in looked like. Mm-hmm. But even just the apathetic senators, everybody that was just being silent. But it wasn't until there was this national shock of like, oh, this is really fucked up. Yeah. That everybody suddenly was like, yeah, wow, yeah, it is. Um, We're going to arrest them right now. And we're going to, um, you know, we did let them get on planes home, but we're going to go to their house in Arizona and Texas and we're going to arrest them and we're going to show you that this is not okay. Because I think that there was this moment of realization, even on the right, of like, oh man, they 
are taking, you know, Trump flags and throwing American flags to the ground and rising Trump flags up at the Capitol, the level of insanity that is happening right now, if we don't condemn this and if we don't come outright and say, you know, you can't behave this way, it's it, it will soon be our time and our reckoning if we don't very quickly condemn this sort of behavior. Yeah. And whiteness, again, is a safety net. These people, I mean, I'm sure it had a lot to do with the fact that a lot of the people who were involved in, you know, who are in the National Guard and who are police, you know, largely agree with Trump. Like, that's important. But also... And endorsed days or or hours before. Like, hours before the... um, Everything that happened at the Capitol, there was, like, this huge thing of, like... That was the the first viral thing since the Georgia election was that XYZ police officers... It was some big police officer franchise. I don't know what it was. Endorsed. Trump on a national scale endorsed exactly. his idea of like there being voter fraud. Yeah. And also just like the prep was not there. They were not preparing for violence, even though it had been uh, very openly organized online. And anyone who had sort of, I mean, I'm a deep into Twitter just because I feel like it's where I get the fastest information these days um, that I can then like double check against other sources, which I don't think other people do, but I recommend it. Um, But yeah, I think that they just from top to bottom underestimated exactly how vitriolic and powerful and crazy, uh, you know, white people can get. And mind you, you know, they had the National Guard on the steps uh, when Black Lives Matter people were showing up, when people were just demanding not to be shot. The National Guard said, "Mm -hmm, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's just, uh, and I think those images are important. I think that it's important for people in order to understand that they need very specific, they need heavily literal stuff. You can't just tell it to them. They need to feel like they've seen it. And so I hope that it'll be effective and impactful. I mean, at the very think- least, he's banned from the internet for a minute. That's exciting. Yes. How do you feel about that from a place? Why don't you <laughs> share with the class? Oh how, did, how does that make you feel? <laughs> um. It's about damn time, like fucking finally, duh, is what I want to say. Um, but I think the one that really shook me was AWS. So like literally the platform that most apps have to develop on. Again, I do a lot of work that involves AWS because a lot of my clients are developers. So the fact that an app got kicked off of an kicked off of AWS is wild to me. Um, is and, that Parler? Uh, yeah, Parler. Uh, mm-hmm. and so just that sort of, I think it's interesting though, because they did sort of preempt this by already creating the specter of big tech. So I'm sure it'll just like upset a lot of people, but I mean, this is the kind of meaningful action that people have been begging for, for forever. This is the sub, this is why, you know, Facebook has been taken to task on the international stage because they were just letting falsehoods go. And this is what happens when you let people tell lies this is what happens. And yeah, so I mean, it could prove problematic because you're going to have to hope that all of these in the future, if this is a precedent, you're going to have to hope that they have actual, you know, ethics advisors who really are specific about their language. But in the moment, you know, saying up until the transfer of power, you can't speak. I think that's fine. Personally, those are private businesses and Republicans fought like hell to make sure private businesses could deny business to whoever they wanted. And this is what you get. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, these are your rules, read them. And I think that 
to serve a short-term goal, great. Long-term, we'll see how it shakes out. We'll see what happens. Um, but short-term, mm-hmm. I think it'll... So, yeah. So just a, a backstory for listeners um, before I tell this to Victoria. Um, Victoria and I, well, the first time that we had a face-to-face conversation was on Zoom because I hosted this like political debrief Zoom call right after the inauguration or right before. I, I don't remember. Um, but anywho... I don't know if you remember in that conversation, we were talking about that one individual's Instagram account who is very um, nauseating, uh, stressful. <laughs> um, well, we actually talked about two, but I'm talking about the female. Yeah. The um, And so it was funny is because I still do watch all of her stuff. And this is an individual for, re- for reference that is very, um, very pro-Trump. I mean, really loves Trump and, um, evangelical and white and just all of the, all of the boxes that you can check. Anywho, it was hilarious because the night before, um, everything happened with everything going on at the Capitol, I saw her post on her stories. It's happening now. Everyone find me on parlor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm moving everything to Parlor. Now they have a new one. It's called Telegram. Oh, yeah. Telegram is actually um, a lot of my activist friends and friends who are really fucking shit up use Telegram because it's encrypted. A lot of sex workers use it. So it's super annoying that the Republicans have found it or what even we call them now. Nazis? What are we calling them as a shorthand? I don't know anymore because it's gotten, well, that's like, I don't know if you have the opportunity to see my story today, but that's like today when someone messaged me saying, um, like, I thought you said this space was inclusive for all. Why are you getting after Republicans? And I was like, well, I think that Trumpism is not Republicanism. A, there's a profound difference. B, there's a massive difference between politics and supremacy. So we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one, bud. But (laughs) it's just... And then the other thing, too, is like, why is it that white people love to fight for the underdog white person so much that they'll... You know when they they do this whole, like, no, 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 no. I know what they did was wrong. No, 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 no. You know, like, I know it was wrong. But, I mean, just hear me out on this. And it's like, why do you have so much energy to devote to upholding the atrocious atrocious actions of a white person, but so much neutrality towards uh, speaking out and loud about the, you know, something that happens to a black or brown person that they didn't do, they didn't ask for. It has nothing to do with their own personal actions. It's just wild to me because almost every time that I get somebody in my DMs who's wanting to brawl about something that I post about, it is 99.99999% of the time a white person. And it's always them wanting to defend the bad behavior of white people, even when they upfront acknowledge that it was bad behavior. They'll be like, no, I know that that was wrong, but just let me tell you why it's infringing on free speech. And I'm like, how about this? How about we talk about racism in America instead? And they're like, no, that's not really. This is their favorite right now. Well, I mean, we we can't be for everything right now. You can't expect us, you know, every person has to have their own passions and their own things. But this is real stuff that people tell me every single day when I go and talk to you know, go down to the Trump folk and try to have some conversations. This is a big one right now. Is I love that human decency is a hobby. 
Um, but I, I just, it's crazy because that's their favorite thing to, to bark at me and to bark on their platforms is don't tell me what to post. I have the right to post whatever I want to post, but also here's me defending a white person. And it's like, okay, so we see where your loyalty lies. We see what you want to defend and what you want to talk about and what, what your interests are. So yes, you're right, technically speaking, that you don't have to post anything you don't want to, but we get to call you out on what your loyalties are when you reveal them so transparently. Yeah, I think we there is this obsession with gaslighting. Like everyone just wants to be allowed to gaslight each other. And I have I have a lot of feelings about like the uh, the way the internet has sort of like taken hold of like therapy speak and sort of like diluted the meaning of a lot of things and made a lot of people be validated in unhelpful ways to their own well-being but I do think that one thing that's great is that everyone knows what it means to gaslight now and and you sort of realize yeah and it's really made the space and I think it's a really compelling argument and it's one that people will understand is I've seen a lot of people talking now about how like comparing this sort of way of thinking and this line of argument to how abusers, you know, domestic abusers, intimate partner violence, you know, perpetrators of intimate partner violence, the way that they perpetuate violence and keep people in cycles of abuse, it's a very similar way of thinking. I have have thought about this so much. I was like, where was this energy when at the end of my relationship in 2018? Because I tell you Mm -hmm. what, wasn't common knowledge among all of the people who sided with someone who gaslit the shit out of me for seven years. Yep. So, um, yeah, I, I totally relate to that on a very real level. Yeah. I'm also going through that shit in therapy right now. So I'm real sensitive to gaslighting. <laughs> like, like what the fuck is going on with that? And you, I, yeah, that's a whole, a whole nother conversation, but yeah. I mean the, the part about the intimate violence and everything with that, but yeah. I just, agree more like could I, not that, agree more. I think it's also genuinely and this is partially because I just love to pathologize I just want to understand everyone's pathology and I want to make everything about psychobabble because I'm obsessed with therapy and I think everyone should do it and it makes so much of life make sense when you take a second to understand that like one none of us are that unique in how we handle things <laughs> and two like it sort of at least for me engenders a level of peace and engenders a level of grace that I have never been capable of giving people up until I sort of understood that. And I just think a lot of people have been taught. I think it's a very American thing. I think America has been gaslighting us for a long time and we think it's really cool and we don't know how to take accountability and it's just super obvious. It's funny. I've never heard it described that way. Uh, The American gaslighting I have, but the whole, you know, pathologizing people and trying to understand them, Mm -hmm. that is bedrock of who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. And at the bedrock of like all the conflict that I've had in adulthood of like not being able to find my niche space because I'm so anthropologically minded that I kind of, I use that as currency rather than the assimilation currency that is most widespread and understood, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And so I am going to start saying that. I'm going to start saying, well, I'm just pathologizing you. Yeah, <laughs> just, I, got that, I got that language from my roommate's therapist. She was like giving me a breakdown from one of her 
sessions and she was like, you're trying to be too clinical and you're trying to be too fair. Like in order to really break this down, you have to stop pathologizing. And I was like, that is exactly what we both do. (laughs) It has been a huge defense mechanism for me in my grief and healing process, in my own personal relationship and my loss of friendships. I have almost to the point of like, like radically forgiven to the point of like, maybe I shouldn't be that forgiving towards those actions, if that makes sense. But it's hard. It's hard not to be that forgiving when you start to pathologize them so much because you're like, well, I mean, if you think about it, your grandpa and that was a big conflict for him. And like, then it passed on to your mom and then now it's you. And so you're like, wait a minute. Kindness with self-betrayal is a bitch. And I am still trying to figure it out every single day and trying to sort of you know, keep promises to myself and actually advocate for myself, but also hold on to that part of myself that I love. And that is that I am capable of, you know, being, of meeting people where they're at, because it's always been something that people have found valuable and that I find valuable and useful. But I think that also deconstructing that and really analyzing it and giving yourself some credit sometimes is really helpful. And I think, you know, like, I said, applicable to a lot of things, applicable here, applicable to politics and just interpersonal relationships. But I feel you, I'm doing the same shit. So yeah, it's definitely something. And it's, it's crazy how well it works though, Mm -hmm. because when you start to realize that someone is this way because of their late grandfather's betrayal of their mother, you're like, oh, it's hard to be angry when you just get, or at least it's, I guess it's in my mind, it's turning the light on and making it a little bit easier to sleep. Like the monster's still there, but the monster can't get you with the light on. You know what I mean? For sure. Yeah. And so it's kind of crazy. But okay, random, random, uh, what do you call it? Pivot, shift. Yes. Random question that I was thinking, I think you brought this up in the last, in the Zoom that we had privately. But um, what are your thoughts on black and brown people who vote for and support Trump? How do you think that happens? Why do you think it happens? I'd love to know because I know that in Georgia, there are probably individuals who fall into that category. And I know that we saw some at the Capitol on Wednesday. I mean, uh, I think there's just like everything, there's a thousand different reasons why that happens. I think offhand and the shorthand would be um, internalized self-hatred. Again, the product of an intentional perpetuation of their oppression and taking that on and being served certain messaging, you know, like if you are, um, you know, if you don't have certain opportunities, it's cause you're not like grinding hard enough or whatever, you know, link and build or whatever LLC language. So I Bootstrap. think, some of, yeah. And I think some people, you know, just really buy into the very capitalist message that if you are disadvantaged, if you are poor, if you are having issues feeding yourself, that's because you're not working hard enough. And so I think that there's a certain group of people who sort of just want to buy into that, like, I'm trying to find that limitless uh, profiting, and I'm trying to be a success story. And then I think there's certain examples of people who've grown up in majority white spaces who sort of you know, assimilated their faces off and don't even understand that they're tools of this system and that they're victims of this system. I think it's a lot of stuff. Um, I personally think that, you know, a lot of people just, you know, white approval is their lifeblood and they really just want to get as close to whiteness as they can so that they can have perceived success. And they genuinely, you know, balk at the idea of linked fate and balk at the idea of being categorized as black or brown and don't necessarily find power in that. 
um, they consider that to be more oppressive than, you know, these systems that they can't necessarily see working in their lives. I think it's a lot of different things. Um, I think that capitalism and whiteness and pro and, you know, that Protestant work ethic are a hell of a drug and they're very convincing. And I think that a lot of people are sadly victims to that. Um, they're also, <laughs> they also just like, make life difficult. It reminds me of this dude who um, was really good friends with this like monster Republican at my school when I was there. And he would try mm -hmm. to hit on me in bars. And I was like, no, because you are the one that he always talks about in class that makes it all right for him to say racist stuff. And you are perpetuating this and I'm not giving you the time of day. And I would hide from him because I was like, you make my life harder. You're making life harder for the team. Um, he tokenized the class. Um, so this guy that I who took a ton of classes with me in college. He was like a very high profile person on campus. He was on Fox news a couple of times complaining about how liberal we were being on the campus of Notre Dame, which is like oxymoronic. Um, but <laughs> one of his good friends was a black guy who would try and hit on me sometimes. And I would literally hide from him because I was like, Oh no, he told me that you spent a summer in New York and that oh, you were God. happy with stop and frisk because it made you feel safer. And I just cannot engage with someone like that. So, oh my God. <laughs> but yeah, I just think that it could be a lot of things and it really depends, but I kind of, I understand like wanting to belong. I understand internalizing the message that you just need to work harder. You know, like, I think there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. And I just, I'm like, ugh, I don't have to, ugh, that's what I no, have to I, say. I think that, um, that question kind of comes from a space of looking to the future and seeing, and that was a micro question. There's so many little micro questions that are going to um, really, you know, the answers to those questions that are going to play out in real time are going to really strongly determine the future of America and the mm -hmm. future of have an office and the future of how progressive we can become because we really saw that in real time during the 2020 elections. We saw the answer to the question how progressive can we be right now answered, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is was really interesting to watch that question be answered in real time because a lot of people were really hoping for more progressive candidate options. And then they were um, met with, I think there was an overwhelming amount of surprise when Biden became the um, forerunner for the election. Mm -hmm. I also think, and I say this as a diehard Bernie supporter, that the reality, the sobering reality is that we would not have won the election if Bernie was the primary contender, which is very, very difficult pill for me to swallow. It's like a whole freaking box of pills. Um, but it made me realize that America wasn't even close to ready for a moderate like Biden based on the fact that it was pretty much 50-50 at the end of the day. So how would we be prepared for more progressive things? And so in that domain, I guess my question is, you know, what do we do about these 55% of white women? What do we do about these black and brown individuals who have been, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid? What do we do about all these people that are populating to the freaking 0.0.1% our voting population? Okay. Um, yeah. So I would, I'd push back a little bit about the idea that Bernie wouldn't have won. You know, there's a lot of people who just based on policies sort of show that he would have actually outperformed Biden. I think that well, thank um, you for saying that. That yeah. makes me, I'm, a, I'm like, thank you. Yeah. I'm going to try and come at this from a couple different angles because I have a lot of thoughts about it. But um, I think that 
what you'll find, and this is a very like poli sci, pretty standard like poli sci idea, is that ever since the late 60s, when we, the primary season sort of um, always benefits a more like moderate, like boring, sort of a more, I mean, moderate now leans conservative because it's such a long season that anyone who's sort of extreme has to sort of like move towards the middle to court everybody across all this time. And like, it sort of muddles out the really progressive ideas because it's just such a dogfight for so long. And you'll often find that like candidates, no one's actually super hype about end up doing well simply because it takes so long that they have, they run all these crazy ads and like, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. the person who does well is the one who sort of kept their head down. <laughs> and, um, were you so, surprised? Were uh, you surprised that Biden won the primaries? Not at all. No. Okay. I was hopeful for somebody else just because, like, the the way I feel about Joe Biden and his ilk is that their brand of politician had their time, and I think it's a bygone era. And I think that something I will appreciate about Joe Biden's style of governance and style of politicking is he's very much the old school style of politician sort of informed from what I can tell sort of informed by like the FDR JFK school of politician politics yeah. where mm-hmm. they are sort of like middle of the road do what you say and basically are not going to do anything super extreme until they are pushed by the populace they want to be pushed they want to actually see what the waves of people are saying but they are open to it, which is why you'll often find them sort of like splitting, splitting the line and not really committing because they genuinely are like, what's the temperature of like the people, which is sort of, you know, the right. old school way of being a politician. But in these times in a, you know, 24 hour news era, post Newt Gingrich, Mitch McConnell, you know, to be a Republican is to love Christ and everything else is anti-God way. That's just like not how people govern. You have to have principles now and you have to stick to them. And so I think that a lot of the points that Bernie was campaigning on were actually really compelling across party lines. And I think that it's super indicative of a lot, the primary system and sort of where we're at. But I also think what's really interesting is that Stacey Abrams model of uh, voter registration and sort of her model for Georgia was sort of a departure from the old school way of thinking about how you get voter turnout, right? Like the obsession before was how do we convince moderates to go to our side? How do we mine this like group of moderates who are sort of wishy-washy? Stacey Abrams said, fuck them. Like they don't, they're not going to be pulled. This is too much. What you want to do is you want to find all of the people who've been suppressed. You want to find people who are on the rolls who haven't shown up to vote. You want to find people who, because of voter ID laws and restrictive stuff, have been um, kept out of the voting booth. You want to activate those people because they are more likely, and sort of by demographic, they're more likely to turn out for you if you just give them the chance. And so that was her system, and people were kind of doubtful, like, is that going to work in a Trump, um, in a Trumpy America where, you know, he's supposedly pulling out all of these voters and stuff. But what you started to see um, throughout time. And I think even like two years into his, uh, term, like in Alabama, when back when Doug Jones was running is that having Trump was not like the end all be all, you know, Alabama got a democratic, I believe he's a Senator. I don't want to be incorrect, but, uh, Doug Jones over Roy Moore, a Democrat 
even though Trump was endorsing Roy Moore and he was a pedophile, but whatever. Um, big year. Yeah. And so I think what you found is that that style of organizing works and that's what Stacey Abrams really worked on. So what they, when you looked at national news, right, they were really focusing on, and they were talking about Atlanta, they were like, oh, those North suburbs, how are they going to do in the North suburbs? But the election was handed to Joe Biden and was handed to our two senators by people from the South suburbs. That's where Black people are. That is minority activation. We had um, highest, I think by like 300% over the past 10 years, turnout in immigrant voters. And that's where the change was made. It was activating people who had been kept out of the system rather than obsessively catering to people who just sort of danced at the middle and could go back and forth. It was just this new way of looking at it. And I think it's, you know, if you look at it, actual democracy, she just was like, no, we're going to do real democracy again. We're going to make sure everyone's talking. And Mm -hmm. in Atlanta specifically, the demographics have changed so much because we have sort of become like a new, um, a new really fertile ground for new business. You know, the demographics are changing a lot. There's a lot of uh, educated professionals moving in. The population has boomed and they're all leftward leaning. And just by sheer numbers are really outnumbering everybody else in the state because the state is largely spread out. We're this big center. And so I think what you found is that that is a model that works in the South, but is applicable everywhere. Everywhere there are... Mm -hmm prohibitive voter ID laws. Everywhere that Republicans have a stronghold, a lot of it has to do with keeping people out more so than having these compelling narratives. And I think that's what she proved. And I think you'll find that's applicable across the South and generally everywhere. And so I think as we put in more money into the South and create infrastructure, because this is not something she did over two years, this is, you know, over a decade in the making. This is a strategy she has had since the Obama years that she's been pushing through. But what really I think sort of took it up a notch is that she had an election stolen from her. And because it was stolen from her and clear voter suppression tactics kept her from the governor's mansion, it got eyeballs and it got her more money. And she really got to apply her strategy in an unparalleled, well-funded way. And it worked. So... Can you share with anybody listening who might be less in tune with kind of the way in which it was stolen from her, um, maybe why this was such a fundamental case, a difference between the voter fraud happening, um, the alleged voter fraud happening (laughs) um, versus the actual um, election, the horrors that happened with Stacey Abrams' case? How How do they differ? Yeah, so when Stacey Abrams ran for governor, She was running against a guy named Brian Kemp, who, while he was running for governor, was also serving as Georgia's secretary of state. And the secretary of state in Georgia oversees elections. Now, it's not uncommon for a secretary of state to run for governor, but they typically give up their seat because it's seen as a conflict of interest. But because he is a white Republican, he got away with keeping his seat, overseeing the election, and running for governor at the same time. And so, what you saw. When in that race is that there were uh, problems with voting machines in all of the largely black and minority counties. You saw um, elimination. This was before her election, but elimination of Sunday voting, which was where black people were getting the majority of 
or getting really good pushes because it was a souls to the polls initiative. It was all black churches would put people in vans and take them to vote. And so you saw uh, left and right, all of this sort of trickery that was legal or dubious, but it pushed the needle far enough that people were suppressed. You had five hour long voting wait times in the city. You had um, polling locations that were supposed to serve tens of thousands of people and they had two machines. You had, you know, limited voting times, weird voting hours, all of this stuff that sort of suppressed people who he knew wouldn't vote. Um, And then there were also instances of mass numbers of people getting removed from the voting rolls for no reason. You had, and it's like a accepted thing in Georgia that you are, you have to check your voter registration all the time because they kept having issues where people were just ending up not on the rolls. Like in my dad's case, when they updated the voter rolls, they put an address on his voter registration that was 15 years old. And it actually ended up causing a lot of problems for him because they started trying to deliver important uh, like communication. Like he had a ticket and they sent it to the wrong address and he hadn't lived at that address for nearly 20 years. And, wow. um, and they later found out it was because of stuff like that. And so you saw tons of weird stuff like that and everyone knew about it and she lost the election. And so that was pretty publicly known and publicly accepted that that election was dubious and something happened. And yeah, so why do you, so not why do you specifically, but mm-hmm. I guess why specifically, but like how, what do you say to someone hypothetically? I don't think you're coming into contact with a whole bunch of them, <laughs> but what do you say to someone that says this was voter fraud, Trump got the election stolen from him? Do you, and and then I think it goes back to like um, what you were just saying, which is that there is enough of a um, possibility for this country to continue the pendulum swinging towards, you know, justice minded reform and all of that through Mm -hmm. just this new type of um, reforming a democracy through, you know, getting people that are not historically voters out to vote. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does that mean that we leave the 55% of white women alone and we don't? We, ju- we don't we don't engage or do we continue what sometimes feels like the play or we being the white women that are responsible for them mm-hmm. what sometimes feels like the thankless work of reaching out and trying to explain you know where what do you think on that front I personally think that demo um where would I start sorry the first part was about what do I say to people who think there was fraud yes sorry um, that was a two very big two-part question yeah no worries um well first of all I would I like to make racists uncomfortable So I would say, uh, okay, well, how come all of the fraud is just being blamed on majority black districts? How come we're not talking about, you know, South Georgia, middle Georgia, there's no accusations of voter fraud there. You know, how come we're not talking about, uh, you know, Brunswick where the cops are famously just like super corrupt and they have government issues all the time. How come we're not worried about them overseeing an election? Like, why is it just the city where, you know, ostensibly we're close to the center of where things happen and they're probably going to want to keep things, you know, nice and tight, especially because the secretary of state's right there. And then I would say, this was the most secure election we've ever had. Even if you don't believe that it was the most observed election we've ever had. Where is all of this stuff? How did he go to court 60 times and stand in front of his own appointees and none of them could find a way to make it work for him? And that would be my main question. And I'd be like, well, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry, pal. I don't know what to tell you. I don't agree. And that's about it. Um, and then sorry, yeah. what was your second question? 
Um, just in regards to knowing what we know about the pendulum swinging towards justice through this new model, or I guess newly used and applied model of getting voters out, mm-hmm. um, do we do we kind of focus on that more than trying to get the moderate or the conservative that isn't, you know, isn't a Nazi but isn't is also very complacent and apathetic towards Nazis? Yeah. <laughs> Um, do, do we just forget about them or do we continue to try to rationalize with them, continue to try to break bread with them, continue to try to find a middle ground with them? Hmm. I don't know. I'm not a political strategist. So, um, I guess, (laughs) I guess what I would say is it's not so much that we abandon those people. And in the same way that when you, when politicians run, um, run races, you know, they'll go and talk to like, They'll talk to the teachers union, but they also want to talk to like the welders and they also want to talk to so-and-so and so-and-so. And and it's about time allocation, right? Maybe just Mm -hmm. allocate a little bit less time to the League of Women Voters, you know, maybe just allocate a little less time, maybe engage more with Asian American populations, maybe engage more with with Latinx groups, maybe just dedicate more of your time to that because it seems to be more fruitful ground. It seems like there is something there. And I mean you've tried and tried and tried again. And it seems like some of these white ladies cannot be trusted. So maybe just sort of aim your attention elsewhere a little bit more. Doesn't mean you stop. It just means, you know, maybe you go to two fundraisers instead of 11, you know? And I also think that results matter. People want to know that you can affect their lives. People need to feel like their lives have been positively impacted by you. And I think that if you just sort of focus on issues that will eventually be a net gain, you can sort of work backwards and be like, hey, you know how your daughter had you know, endometriosis and that was considered a pre-existing condition and now she can be covered and she can you know, have a baby in a hospital and not go bankrupt? Like, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> you know, never mind that Latinx put me, people put me in the Senate to get that passed and protect it, but you got it. Isn't it exciting? And I think yeah. sort of, I think if you just sort of reorient it that way, you can still, those people are not lost to you just because you're not obsessed with them anymore. Because the truth of the matter is minorities have been on the back burner for the entirety of this country. And we still are pretty consistent in our behavior and we still keep showing up and showing out. So I think if you just sort of reorient your attention, it doesn't mean that there's not a space for that. It doesn't mean that there aren't people who won't be dedicated to that. But I think if you just sort of recognize that there are other places to put your resources that may be just as fruitful, if not more. That's not, and I think that's pretty valuable, personally. Well, for somebody who is not a political strategist, you are ter- certainly taking us to church on this. I have to deal with a lot of opinions. <laughs> that is, that's a crash course, though. That's perfect. I don't. I think that for most of my listeners, uh, strategists would have gone right over our head. But that was a very spoon-fed. Um, <laughs> thank you for that, because that's exactly you know, and 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 on a personal level, not just for listeners, but for me as well. Just trying to figure out, like, how do you. How do you approach the thou- how do you approach the thousand pound rock, right? How mm-hmm. do you how do you approach it, and how do you not burn out at you know as you try to pick it up, knowing full well that the end result isn't actually picking it up; it's just trying to put a dent in it. And um, it's just so much. There's so much going on as you look to the future, um, especially with the upcoming inauguration and everything. What is your 
what are your predominant feelings? What do you think we can expect to see in the next little while? Or what what would you hope to see, I guess? I mean, I think that the long and short of it is that what we're experiencing is a white lash. It's white backlash against perceived progress and then against a perceived um, sense of whiteness becoming obsolete and challenging power. And that's not going to stop. Whiteness is powerful. Um, you know, privilege is potent and it is something that moves people. People are willing to put their lives on the line to maintain their privilege or to maintain their illusion of privilege. And that's not going to stop anytime soon. But that doesn't mean that there is not reason to hope because this shit has been happening for years. It's been happening forever. Earth has been a terrifying place to live for a long time. I just think that before we weren't inundated with every example of it all the time. So I like to think of it that way. It's how we maintain hope is that, you know, we've been fighting and shooting at each other and, you know, pillaging villages forever. And we're just trying to figure out a way to make the most people happy most of the time. And it's going to feel overwhelming. That is just existence. So I think, yeah, so I think that's important, but, you know, keep perspective that there are signs of hope. Two Democrats are in the Senate from Georgia. Two, Um, (laughs) a Jewish man, a Jewish man is a senator from the state of Georgia. And when the Klan was reborn, it was reborn to hang a Jewish man. And now here we are in 2021 and we put a Jewish man in the Senate. It can be done. And yeah, yeah. And so I think that it's important to maintain hope and it's important to recognize that a lot of the hopelessness and the fear and the craziness that you see is a product that was built intentionally. This was a system that was built to last on itself. It was built to manipulate people into keeping it going for them so that the people at the top could stay rich and the people at the top could could avoid consequences. So being scared and things being bad is going to happen because it was done by design. But there are ways to get around it. And there are very smart people who know how to do it and who believe it. And I think if you keep that in mind and you find little niche ways that you can get into that, that's fantastic. And it, it doesn't, you don't have to be on it all the time. You know what I mean? It's protect yourself, take care of yourself and you'll be way more effective. Um, right. And also Absolutely. moving forward, I'm hopeful that maybe we'll start, you know, eventually on the very slow path of making our democracy look like every other Western government, you know, like the, the <laughs> matter is everyone's like, oh, <laughs> oh, we're just, we're becoming so extreme. We're being taken over. And I'm like, we are so conservative and so right leaning to every other like country that we consider up here. All of Western Europe is like, what is your deal? You know what I mean? So we are, just, yeah. we are playing catch up. And I think that you know, I think that there's a way that this, that we can move forward. I am hopeful right now. And so I would just say, now is the time to sort of aim your funds and your attention to the people doing really, really meaningful work. Now is the time to start setting up frameworks, but it's not going to be easy. And it's going to be super, super, super hard fought from the other side because, you know, taking down people in power is hard, always has been. It's interesting that you talk about, or you talked about a little while ago, how um, Joe Biden has just, you know, what his style of politics is mm-hmm. and how it's very 
anonymous with FDR and just that whole era of politicians. I mean, I think um, he fancies himself an FDR. I wouldn't necessarily. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he wants, he strives. But those guys are the guys who read, you know, Profiles in Courage and they read the FDR biographies. Like that's what they think you do, you know? Yeah. It's very, yeah, it's very funny. It's kind of like the wish version of, um, (laughs) it feels like that a little bit. Like there was, even though, you know, we, we could have a hold on their podcast about the whole Obama administration, um, for better or worse and all of that there, you cannot deny that Obama being elected. I mean, chills. Like the, I'm talking about the very specific day that it happened, the days afterwards, the the campaigning up until that was like crazy, amazing, just change. You you just felt all of those feelings that you wanted to feel with a president becoming a president, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we would be lying if we said that we felt those feelings directed towards Joe Biden. I think it was more just directed towards like, oh my God, thank God the Cheeto's not in office anymore. Yeah, that sure. our joy was right. Our joy was there. But and Joe Biden, you know, no, like he's just a very He's just a guy being a guy. Like he's just living. Like there's no major issues. I I have such a soft spot for his love for his son. Oh my god, same. Like that <laughs> kills me. Like yeah. something about the humanity and the humanness in the way that he talks about Bo and the way that he tears up about Bo. It's just like it's very very sobering. But anyways, not the point. The point is is that. I do think that it's interesting because in order, I agree with you that in order to get really anything done in this administration, we're going to have to be a very, very vocal populist, right? Because it's, it would be one thing if we had elected Bernie or, you know, a comparable in, we would be like, okay, like, let's just go. We're going to go on vacation while daddy Bernie just takes care of everything for us. (laughs) Now he's just going to get it all done. But um, I think now it's kind of like we all feel this sense of, okay, we know you're very moderate, but we know we have your ear. So we're going to work hard, if not harder, to see what we can get done with you in office, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's, so, and yeah, and to sort of, oh God, my poli professors would be so excited. Um, to sort <laughs> of like compare it to what happened in Georgia, like, it was really surprising what happened in Georgia because typically the party who does well in the general does not do well in the runoff, right? When you're happy, you stay home, the pissed off people show up and they vote in the runoff and you have a problem. But Mm -hmm. I think what you found here is that something that Raphael Warnock really did is he spent a lot of his advertising on the runoff election. He put out a bunch of ads preemptively being like, Hey, Georgia, she's going to call me names. Get ready. Here's me and my dog. And it was like, uh, really, <laughs> effective. I'll DM you one of the ads. It's delightful. It's him yeah, watching a dog. Um, and in that spirit, you sort of have to be like, okay, this is the time where people are generally going to recede. They feel peaceful. They feel like things are going to go work. But what you need to do and what works is you need to double down and be like, this is the start. This is where I'm, I'm going to put my resources towards making sure you answer that question. And I also think that you can sort of see it in the way he's sort of telling the line and being like, please, guys, let's have unity. You can sort of see that he could very easily be pushed to appeasing the right in the name of quote unquote unity. But I think mm-hmm. what is of the utmost importance now is that he understands that in order to get a second term, in order to keep Democrats in office, in order to keep this. There is no way that man is going to be alive for a second term. 
<laughs> in order to keep this momentum going, you need to take this power and you need to run with it. And you need to show people that you can make your their lives better quickly. And you need to do it fast and you need to do it before midterms. You need to make the most of these first two years. You can't just sit around and rest on your laurels and be like, great, everyone take a deep breath. You need to do it. You need to make big structural important change. You need to forgive student debt. You need to guarantee insurance for everyone. You need to do these big, big things so that you can create momentum that helps impact and helps create um, helps create the framework to keep this going or else what you're going to have is another white lash and you're going to have all these people coming out of the woodwork and taking advantage of us resting on our laurels. So I think it's super important now more than ever not to be complacent. Yes, 100. Yeah, yeah just absolutely. And I think too, with so, something that's like such a big dichotomy that comes to mind is just how interesting it is that so many Republicans and conservatives and Trump supporters will happily take their stimulus check, will happily, <laughs> um, you know, they will very happily um, have their student loans well for those of them that decided to go that direction. Um, <laughs> um, um, returned, you know, if they have college debt that they want paid off, they're definitely going to take advantage of that. Even if it is implemented in a Biden administration, they're going to take their stimulus check if it's implemented in a Biden administration. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them will take a vaccine delivered in the (laughs) Biden administration. And so it is interesting that when it works for them, the endometriosis example was perfect. Mm-hmm. They'll utilize the benefits. But again, that's not an uncommon story that we've seen throughout history when it works for them to reap the benefits of what has been sown by black and brown individuals, then they'll do that. But when it doesn't, then they're going to lash out on those same individuals. Exactly. And I think that's another compelling reason to focus on rather than those moderates who are just going to take the benefits. And to a certain extent, they're moderates because either way, they're probably going to be okay. That's what that means. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. To a certain extent, you have to accept that they are just going to vacillate. They're probably going to be okay one way or another. But if you focus on those people who are not, and you focus on those people who are counted out and feel as if the process doesn't work for them, then you show them that you can do that. You'll You'll create a base that'll really work for you. And I think, yeah, I think we agree a lot, which has been really nice. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I know. And we're coming to a close here on the episode. And I guess it's just crazy because there are 10 million more rabbit holes that you and I could go down right now. Yes. (laughs) Them could put us over two hours, over three hours, but it's just, you're trying to kind of stay at the forefront of all of the, put our toes in the water of all the little conversations because it feels very overwhelming at times to have so many things going on. And I think too, so many different parts of a whole, right? Because there, this is not, this was not created um, because of one or two things. This climate in America, uh, the, the, the 2021 experience, the 2021 pro. Um, <laughs> and it, it's been 300 years coming. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so and there was, there was signs that it, in hindsight, you could have seen it 300 years ago. And so it's pretty wild to um, to just be in real time and be watching it play out. But I, I, I share the same hope that you have. I think that I have to, I can lean into my pessimism a little bit, um, or so I'm told by my family and friends at times. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it's very good to have conversations with people like you who are um, at the epicenter of a place where there's a lot happening right now, where arguably the biggest thing of the week besides the, I mean, how, how freaking white people of them, <laughs> you know, the, like, it's like, it's like those kids in elementary school where it's like, but teacher, I have one too. Like, you know what I'm yeah. talking about? They just, they couldn't let us have just this moment, this be the news cycle. They couldn't let us have one 24 hour news cycle. It had to just be like, but teacher, look what I can do to the Capitol. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm like, oh, you, oh my God, you weren't centered for like two days and you're like, tear it all down. Imagine what it was like to grow up like the rest of us, my guy. Come on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But um, Capitol rioting and, um, all of that aside, the biggest news cycle of the week was was happening in your backyard. Mm-hmm. And um, like you said, that's a lot, a lot to unpack and a lot to, I'm sure, be at the center of. But um, it is really nice to have that conversation. And I know that it's going to be really nice for people who are listening in because not everybody knows somebody in Georgia. Not everybody knows what's happening there, especially not someone who's, you know, really well versed in what's happening in the political sphere. Um, like you said, there's a lot of wonderful artists and accountants who are um, just kind of needing that extra push from those sure. that have devoted their life, for better or worse, to. Um, <laughs> for worse. I say this, um, I'm like, I'm like spewing all this positivity, and I'm like, I am also crippled by anxiety because I know how yeah. everything works. <laughs> like, yes, yeah, and so, yeah. Really- I'm going in eyes wide open, but I just think that this narrative that, oh, feeling like upset and it's not going to work for me. It's been disproven again. And that's important. And like, we're going to have a lot of setbacks and these dudes are very powerful and effective, but like, I just have to encourage other people to be hopeful. You know, if you're going to do the cliff's notes of what's going on here, that's fine. I'll dive in and know all the bad shit. I'm going to give you a cliff's notes, but it is going to have a little happy bend, you know, like I'm not going (laughs) to. Yeah. Well, we, Appreciate the happy bend because honestly, it's the only thing keeping us going. Um, (laughs) As we end this conversation live from Georgia, do you have anything that you, I guess, would like to say to anybody out there that is feeling all these feelings that you and I both are feeling? And I don't know, like what what's to come? Uh, I, I don't know. You, I don't know, dude. And I think just batten down get along for the ride you know just take every day as you can and just try to give a shit I understand that it's scary and overwhelming Uh, if you don't know what you're talking about that's okay keeping your mouth shut is not the same as doing nothing you know what I mean like you can keep your mouth shut if you're not sure what's going on I encourage you to dive in and find resources and learn but I know it's scary and I know it's overwhelming and I know you have a lot of other shit to do and I know that the only reason, one of the few reasons that I know about this is because I was privileged at the right times in my life to be given the opportunity to learn. And mm-hmm. I'm so grateful. And so I would just say, if you're listening to this podcast, you're already taking a step, obviously. Um, but just do what you can. That's what we're all doing. And I think that you'll find that just the doing is what's important. Don't just check out because it's scary. Some of us don't have the option. Um, and just remember that. And try and find a way to align yourself and your skills and your passions with making the world a little bit better for everybody else. And I think you'll 
find that it sort of falls into place. It's hard as, you know, as your host has said, trying to figure that out and trying to balance it, but people really do value just trying. And that's all you can do. That's all any of us are doing. We're all faking it. So <laughs> thank you so much, Victoria. Seriously, I multiple times have been sitting here with my mouth open just in like shock and admiration of how amazing you are. Every time you have a guest on as a podcast host, especially as a new podcast host, um, I've been very fortunate to have amazing guests back to back to back. Yeah. But uh, kind of like are like, oh, I'm nervous. Like, what is this person going to say or not say? Or, you know, what What if I have to help move the conversation along? That is uh, quite the opposite in this situation. I feel like I've learned, I'm coming away from this time having learned probably as much as anyone listening. And so I'm very grateful for your time. Um, and for just sharing your wealth of knowledge and insight that you have. And you're just an amazing, amazing gift. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I could talk to you a wall about this kind of stuff. I really appreciate you taking the time and opening up your platform for this. This is so fun. Absolutely. There's a lot more to come. And if you'll if you'll come back, I can think of a couple episodes in the next year where I would like... Anytime. I would, I would love it. So, so we'll hear more from you. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.